time for God's Word, let's open up our Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. John, chapter 7. And we'll read verse 2, but then we'll jump to verse 37. Okay, so we'll read verse 2 by itself, and then we'll read verses 37 to 39 together as one block. Let's, uh, let's read. John chapter 7, verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Verse 37. In the last day of that, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst... Let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this day. We thank you... Indeed, for the rain and for the sun and for the many blessings which come from your throne. Father, we thank you first and foremost for the salvation which was provided for us. We thank you for the grace which was bestowed upon us and continues to be given liberally to us simply by believing, simply by faith. We thank you for that. We thank you for your presence here today. And we pray that your word would go forth unhindered. I pray also that uh, our hearts would be ready to receive that word which you have prepared for us. And we thank you once again for the word which we hold in our hands, which you have preserved perfectly for us in this Bible that we read. We thank you once again that we can trust every word in it because we trust you. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm not sure if you've heard recently, um, but... There was a resolution that was submitted by a number of Arab countries to an organisation called UNESCO. Most of you know, have heard of UNESCO, okay? It's the United Nations Department. I'll, I'll explain what it is a little bit uh, soon. A number of Arab countries got together and submitted a particular proposal. And these countries included Algeria, Egypt, Lebanon, Morocco, Oman, Qatar and Sudan, and a few others. And what they claimed, and what the, what the uh, submission stated, was that UNESCO would recognise the Temple Mount okay, as a Palestinian cultural site. Is that fair enough? As a Palestinian cultural site. Because the Dome of the Rock, that mosque, is sitting on that particular site. Fair enough. The only problem is that in that particular proposal, they failed to mention anything about the Jews' connection to that site. So it gave no reference at all to the historical connection that the Jews had to the Temple Mount, or that Christians might even have, to the fact that Jesus taught in that temple, and that that temple was originally there and was a Jewish sacred site uh, 2,000 years ago. This has upset Israel. As a submission made by these countries was purely trying to score a few political points. Okay? Um, but despite this, 
UNESCO approved the submission. They ratified it. They ticked it off just this last week. Okay? So UNESCO stands for the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation. UNESCO is responsible to list down all the cultural sites in the world that require some sort of protection and recognition. And their job is to do that. What made this more difficult for the Jews is that it did not refer to the site as a Temple Mount. It didn't refer to the site as the Wailing Wall because that's connected as well to that same place. It only referred to it in two terms. One was either the Dome of the Rock or the beautiful... What do they call that thing? The beautiful mosque, I think it is. So it only refers to in that particular fashion. The Israeli Education Minister, Naftali Bennett, informed UNESCO of Israel's decision this Friday to cut all professional ties, all ties with UNESCO. And he said, following the shameful decision by UNESCO members to deny history and ignore thousands of years of Jewish ties to Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, I have notified the Israel National Commission for UNESCO to suspend all professional activities with the international organisation. So what they did is they removed any reference of that site to the temple and the wailing wall from the particular document and remove any possible history that connected them, the Jews, to Jerusalem or that temple mount, which goes against the very scriptures we hold in our hands because we know that when Jesus walked the earth, he went to that temple and guess who the people were that were living in that area? They were the Jews. And that temple was their temple. The fact that the Romans came in later, knocked it down, and, and then the Muslims managed to build a mosque on top of that doesn't remove the fact that that should be also a significant site for the Jews. This is another indication that the world we live in is a bit upside down, messed up, and often enemies of the word of God. The obvious truth that is missing is the Jews do have a deep connection with their land, with Jerusalem and the actual temple. And in fact, the Jews at the moment are even trying to pass resolutions in their own parliament to begin a fund to rebuild the temple. How are they going to rebuild the temple when there's a mosque on there? It's going to be an interesting scenario. But that scripture teaches that one day there will be a temple on there is absolutely sure because it actually says that when Jesus returns to this world, he returns as king of kings and lord of lords, there's going to be a temple there. And guess where, which throne he's going to be sitting in or on? In that temple. That temple is going to be his. So it has to be built. When he, uh, when, he, when he gets back. So it's going to be built between now and the time that he returns. The scriptures teach consistently that during this time that Israel will be a stumbling block to the entire world is absolutely amazing because it is. It's been going on since Israel was created that it's been a stumbling block to the entire world because the Arab countries have tried to get rid of it a number of times, there have been multiple wars there, and at, that time, at this time, there are continual frictions in that area. 
that the Antichrist will one day come, and possibly very soon, and provide a solution to bring peace, and I'll put that in inverted commas, to Israel and the, its neighbours around, is taught very clearly in Scripture. And that decision and that particular solution will provide the ability for Israel to rebuild their temple. That's what the Scripture teaches. So before the temple gets built, the Antichrist has to come and provide the means for how that temple will be built. Um, just let you know that the conditions are perfectly ripe at the moment. The world is perfectly ripe and ready. Okay, It doesn't take much to tip the balance for that Antichrist to rear his ugly head. The good news for us is that, as I've mentioned before, we have what's called a blessed hope to look forward to because before he rears his ugly head, the Bible says that Jesus is coming to take us back to be with him. And while we're away, uh, we're going to be snatched away, mind you, okay? While we're away, he is going to um, basically do what he wants with this world. And it's not going to be a very happy place for seven years. But at the end of seven years, the Bible says that Jesus will return and he will, uh, let's say, liberate the world from the devil and his uh, chosen leader. And Jesus will take his rightful place as the head of this world. It's, if you look at the word of God and if you look at the conditions that we have now, it so clearly matches what's going on. It just, it's extraordinary even to think about um, the fact that it says that the Jews are going to have a homeland, they're going to be rebuilding a temple when for almost 2,000 years they didn't have any, any country at all. They had no country. They were a dispersed people like some other people in the world. Why they would get the opportunity in 1947, I think it was, to rebuild or restart their country in a day is something that will go down in history. It's something very strange. But we know that whenever God says something, it will come to pass. The sermon today is not to discuss the obvious, that this world is a bit messed up, but it's to speak to you about another important event and to speak to you about this particular passage, which has also just concluded this past week. What makes UNESCO's decision even more interesting is that they passed this resolution, they ticked it off, at the end of one of Jews, the Jews' most important feasts in Jerusalem. Anyone know what that is? It just finished. The Feast of? Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is just finishing now. And they're celebrating their most important day um, on the eighth day, which is today. Interesting thing about that. I'll, I'll explain what the Feast of Tabernacles is about, and this is what I wanted to speak to you about. The Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, was commanded by God in the Old Testament for them, for the Jews, to keep as a memorial forever. And while the Jews were celebrating this feast over the past week, celebrating their connection with this land and celebrating this particular feast, um, the world's government was saying they have no connection to that land or to Jerusalem. And they had no right to essentially be in that city. 
So I'm going to discuss with you the Feast of Tabernacles, which has just been celebrated, to see what we might learn from this particular feast, because the Bible says that everything that was written aforetime or before was written for our learning. There is something in it for us to actually learn. So we're going to look and see what this feast means. And essentially, it celebrated God's salvation of Israel from Egypt. And it remembered his provision for them while they were walking around the wilderness for 40 years living in tents. Or the Bible calls them booths. Okay, Little makeshift houses that they had to erect and then pack up and move to the next area. So we're going to look at that or this particular uh, feast now. All right, so let's, let me give you a bit of a background. Every biblical holiday given to the Jewish people has basically three aspects to it. Israel was to observe the holiday in the present in order to remember the past and to look forward to something in the future at the same time. Every one of these feasts that God asked Israel to observe had some connection with the past, but also was telling about something that was coming up in the actual future. During the Feast of Tabernacles, or what they call the Sukkot, the Jewish people would gather together to get together, not only to remember God's provision for them in the wilderness, but to look forward to a time when the Bible said, during the Messianic age, when Jesus would be ruling the world, when all the nations of the world would go to Jerusalem and celebrate the same feast. It's strange, isn't it? It's not just a Jewish feast. It's actually a feast that God expects the nations of the world to actually get involved with. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 31 with me for a moment. And we'll just look at something that just clearly includes the Gentiles. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 12. And the interesting thing here is that even though this was a particularly Jewish thing, because they were remembering how God saved them out of Egypt, look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 12. Look at the instructions. Gather the people together, men and women and children, and thy stranger that is within thy gates, that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of the law. See that thing that says, and the stranger? That's everyone else. Everyone else was invited. So if you were a foreigner in, uh, in Israel, during this particular feast, you were invited to actually participate in this particular feast. It wasn't ex- you weren't excluded. The most visible symbol of this particular feast is the building of small booths or makeshift. It's like a makeshift hut. They were commanded to build it and dwell in it for eight days, essentially. And when that, so even now, the Jews build these things, and they probably had them on their balconies, the front, the front of their houses, or whatever. They build these little things, and some of them, you know, they decorate them. They they put ribbons on them and all this sort of stuff. Some families eat their meals inside that hut. Some people sleep there at night. But these flimsy booths 
were a reminder to Israel that they once dwelt in temporary shelters during the 40 years in the wilderness. And because of that, they were totally dependent on God for their provision. You see, where you don't have a land that you can till and you can grow and you can do all these sort of things, um, if you don't have a, a, imagine if you were living in a tent going around a desert, essentially. You'd be very reliant on whoever it was that was leading you around. In this particular case, they were reliant completely upon God's provision. And the message of this particular feast was to remind the Jews that God is faithful. And he continues to provide all that we need. Despite the fact that even we are pilgrims in this world. It reminds them of how God looked after them for 40 years. Provided for them and their, their families. And this year... The Feast of Tabernacles, as I said, has been celebrated between the 16th and the 21st of October. And it's not only mentioned in the Old Testament, but it's also mentioned in the New. It's also mentioned as something that's going to happen in the future. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 23 with me. Leviticus 23, and we'll see God's instruction for this particular thing for the first time. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 33 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. On the first day shall be an holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. Seven days ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be an holy convocation unto you, and ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and ye shall do no servile work therein. <clears throat> they had to take a break for seven days plus one. Go down to verse 41. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So we get that? So God wants them to remember forever the salvation that he provided for them from Egypt. But the fact that they were wandering around a desert for 40 years, he wanted them to also remember that they were totally dependent upon him for 40 years. Turn to Zechariah. Zechariah. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. One of the last books of the Old Testament. And we'll look at Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16, as it tells us something interesting. Zechariah chapter 14.
Now look at verse 16 to 19. It says, And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. You get that? Do you understand what's just been written here? This was written before Jesus came on the scene, well before, at least 500, 600 years before Jesus was born. So we're talking about 2,500 years ago. What this is saying is that there's going to come a day, a future time, because this hasn't, none of this has happened yet. Has there been any time in the history when all the nations of the world had to go and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem? Anyone know about that time? No. Has anyone know any time in history when all the nations were expected to send up representatives to worship the king in Israel? No. So what's it talking about here? It's speaking about a time when all the nations which came against Jerusalem, you know what we call that? Armageddon. We call that time when, when the nations of the world actually array themselves around Jerusalem and Israel to destroy it. And Jesus comes back and saves it. And he wipes out those armies. And the interesting thing in this particular verse, if it's right, and I know it actually is, it says that not all nations are going to have, not all nations are going to be left. Which means they're going to be some that are going to be completely wiped out by God. Completely. So it says who is left of all the nations. So, remember I said to you, there are seven years which the Antichrist will rule this world. He will do his best to get everyone on board with him to destroy Israel. Because in Israel, there will be two witnesses that are going to be preaching the gospel. And there will be 144,000 Jewish men who will be preaching all over the world. And he'll be do his, his absolute best to destroy both of those groups and to destroy Israel and wipe it out. But it says that Jesus will return and he will wipe out his armies and the devastation will be so bad they'll be cleaning this place up for many, many years. After that particular battle, there'll be a thousand years of peace. That's what's called the Millennial Kingdom. Now, the interesting thing is, who are these? Who's the direction given to, um, and what are they asked to do? Well, the direction is given to all the nations that are left in the world, and they have to come up year by year. That doesn't mean every person in every nation, but it means every nation has to send a representative or a representative party or group to Jerusalem to worship the king. To worship the king? Who are they worshipping in Jerusalem? Jesus. 
There's been no other time when there's been an expectation for them to go and worship the King, the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. This is something that's still yet to come. And there will obviously be ramifications for those countries who rebel against that, who don't want that. Now you might think, hang on a sec, the, the thousand year reign, isn't that meant to be like an unbelievably you know, perfect time? Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Because during that time, Satan will be locked up for a thousand years, the Bible says. He'll be, he'll be bound, so he won't be able to cause too much mischief. So any disobedience that comes from man will come directly from himself. But it says that after a thousand years, Satan will be loosed from his prison and he will go around and he'll convince everyone else to do what? He'll convince the nations once again to come and try and the same thing that they did a thousand years before to destroy Jerusalem and finish God's rule over them. The Bible tells us that during that thousand years that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. That's not a nice rule. He will be quite strict. As you can see from this particular passage, you don't send up your representatives to worship and to, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, you get no rain. You continue to persist, you'll start getting plagues. Sounds pretty tough, doesn't it? But this is the reality of what the Bible teaches us. So who were they coming up to worship? Jesus. This has never happened and God's word is always correct. So if this, this passage, if you look at it, agrees perfectly with the book of Revelation and every other prophetic piece of scripture that speaks about the future times. Some nations will be utterly destroyed by the Lord, but the ones that are left, will there will be an expectation upon them to come to Jerusalem every year and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So this feast that Jesus spoke at at the end of the, of, the, of the actual feast, will still be going on in the Millennial Kingdom. Let's go back to our original passage. Let's go back to John chapter 7, now that we've got that background about these particular, this particular feast. And I'd like us to look at what Jesus said. So, remember the structure. There were seven days they were meant to have this feast. They were meant to build and live in these particular booths. And then it says on the eighth day, they were meant to have this as a special day that they would remember. So this feast lasted really for eight days. <clears throat> what day do we meet at in church? Is it day one, two, three, four, five, six, seven? It's day one. It's actually day eight. Day eight is a Sunday. Day eight is a Sunday. So we are meeting on day eight, which is the day, that day when they celebrated that special day, which is that final day. We meet on day eight, which is a Sunday, because on a Sunday, Jesus rose again from the grave. Okay? Let's have a look and see what it says. Verse 37, John chapter 7, verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. 
He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. glorified. During the Feast of Tabernacles, there were special observances and traditions that were created for them to remember. And obviously they needed things to do during the eight days. So on that last day, they had, uh, or they have, a, a spectacular ceremony called the water drawing ceremony. On the great day of the feast, which is the final day, the Jewish people developed a special observance and it included a parade of worshippers with flutists and, and people reading scripture. And it, the priest would lead that congregation or that group of people all the way, all the way down to the pool of Siloam. Where Jesus told the blind man to bathe his eyes after he put clay over them. The priest had two golden pitchers. One was for the wine and the other was from water, from that particular pool. And as the flute continued to play, there'd be choirs of Israelites chanting Psalm 118. The whole procession headed back to the temple through the water gate. So there are a number of gates in Jerusalem, so they'd go through the water gate. A trumpet sounded as the priest entered the temple area. He approached the altar where two silver basins were waiting for him, and he pours wine into one of the basins as a drink offering to the Lord and water from the pool of Siloam into the other. The ceremony was to give thanks for God for his provision of rain and to ask for a blessing for the coming year. So if they were doing that in Jesus' day, and Jesus then sees that they're involved in this particular procession and this whole thing is to give thanks for God's provision of rain and water and the results of that, which is they could actually have wine and food and everything else. He stands up in the midst of that and says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Do you get, his, do you get the, the image here? These guys are celebrating the fact that God provided water for them for 40 years in a desert. And then on top of that, you've got this water ceremony going on where they, where they have like this, this flamboyant and this, and this very intricate sort of ceremony with its focus on water. And in the midst of all that, Jesus stands up and says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me. Turn back to Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 with me. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. Because one of the great challenges with having about... How many people would there have been going around the wilderness? What do you reckon? What are the estimates? About a million? Three million. Three million. All right, I had about two. <laughs> including kids as well, yeah. Um, so they left, they left uh, Egypt... And they probably had around 2 to 3 million people. So imagine that sort of number going around a wilderness. All right? Just travelling around for 40 years with no place to call home. One of the challenges with, um, with that would be, how do you provide water and food for that, for that number of people? No infrastructure, no nothing. They just have to settle down and, and they have to um, you know, find water. Well, they did it for 40 years. But there were a couple of times 
when people started getting a bit thirsty and a bit narky about not having enough water, okay, and they started complaining. And these are two places where God provides a miraculous um, answer to their prayers. Well, I won't say their prayers because it was really their whinging, okay? Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 says, And all the congregation, you got that? Of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeyings according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide Moses. That means they rebuked him. They were, they were angry with him. And said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? That's a pretty big complaint. Why have you brought us here for? You saved us from Egypt, but you want to kill us now by not giving us enough water? Verse 4 says, And Moses cried unto the Lord and saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. They wanted to kill him. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, which means it's going to hit it. And there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all of, of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Okay, so... Get the picture. Three million people and, and their elders and the, 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 the leaders of those particular clans and families were going to Moses and said, we're going to kill you if you don't find some water for us. So rather than going to, to Moses and saying, can you please pray to the Lord for us to actually provide some water for us? They started arguing and they wanted to kill him and they got angry and said, why did you save us to kill us again and, and stuff like that? So God answered their prayer. And they did it again. Go to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. God provided water in an absolutely miraculous way for them. How many times have you hit a rock and water came out of it? I know there's a saying that you can't draw blood from a stone or water from a stone. God does. If God wants to do it, he can. He can get water from a stone. He can get whatever he likes from a stone. But in Numbers chapter 20, verse 7, they did the same thing again. Verse 7, and it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak, notice that word, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so that thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts to drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. All right, so he's got everyone lined up over there and said, look at this. And he said unto them, hear now, ye rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. 
And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also he smote the rock twice. Um, the first time he was he was asked to smite the rock, so he hit the rock, water came out. The second time he was asked to speak to the rock, right? He would simply say, "Bring forth water," and they were meant to actually see how God answered that particular prayer, which is even more impressive than hitting a rock. Let water come out, and water would have come out. But instead of doing that, Moses got angry with everyone. What do you want? You want me to get water from this rock? All right, I'll do it for you. And he forgot the actual command that God had actually told him, so he went to hit the rock. Now, I, get, I, I, I think that he had to hit the rock twice because maybe the first time didn't work. <laughs> so God graciously let the water come out the second time he hit it. But just to give you an idea of why God asked him to speak to the rock the second time, Jesus was, was crucified once. This is a picture of Jesus. Everything's a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. The Bible says that he was crucified once for sinners like us. And the second time, you don't crucify him again. You speak to him and you say, can you please save me? That salvation comes by believing in your heart, confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Instead, Moses ruined the picture. And for that, Moses actually copped it. Because God said, because you didn't do what I asked you to do, you're not entering the promised land. You only get to see it from the top of a mountain. And he died on that mountain watching Israel after he'd been with them for 40 years, going around and, 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 and doing everything God wanted. For that one thing, God said, I'm not going to let you go in. God miraculously gave them water to drink when they needed it the most. The Bible tells us that that rock that he struck and that rock that he struck a second time was Jesus. That was not only a picture of Jesus, actually was. God somehow was in that rock and he provided that miraculous water for them. And it says that he followed them in the desert, providing everything they needed. That was Jesus. So my question, if you look at this particular passage, did God allow his children and his people to thirst because he was nasty or cruel? No, not at all. Do you remember the, the question they asked? They asked Jesus, his disciples asked Jesus for the man who was born blind. And they said, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born like this? And Jesus said, no one, neither him nor his parents. It was this way, he was born this way, so what? That God could be glorified, that God would actually do a miracle that would glorify God. And God allowed them to go thirsty for a while. So he could show his power and what he could do if people would simply put their trust in him. But the problem was, they, were, they instead of asking God and humbly coming to him and saying, after all the miracles they'd seen, can you please provide us some water? They rebelled. It shows the heart of man over and over again. We can't help ourselves. But the big message from this particular passage is that God is not as interested in providing physical water and physical food as much as he is us being hungry for spiritual food and spiritual water. Because the world hungers for these things. The world hungers for physical food and spiritual food and money and, and houses and everything else. And God says, look, I can provide you with all those things. Don't worry about all those things. I want you to focus on the things that are important. 
Because if you have the important things, which is a spiritual food that I can provide for you, all that other stuff I'll give you. Don't worry about it. Let me share some scripture verses with you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Don't turn with me because we won't have time. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Luke chapter 12, verse 31. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2 says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, this is Jesus in the desert, and he was afterward and hungered. Okay, so after 40 days of not eating, you're going to be pretty hungry. Verse 3, it says, And when the tempter came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. It's not the physical stuff that you should be worried about. It's the spiritual thing which leads to life. And finally, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are they. Blessed are you if you hunger, if your hunger is for righteousness, is for God's food. He'll fill you up. God's teaching in all of this that there is much more to life than just simply physical food and, and drink. There is much more than our, and that our eyes see and that our ears hear and that we taste and we touch. And the desire to have our physical appetite satisfied should only cause us to think, what about my spiritual appetite? Do I have one? Because if I have no spiritual appetite, am I really alive? One thing that makes you alive, one thing that tells you that I'm living now is I get hungry, I get thirsty, I have an appetite, my body needs something, so I'm continually looking to satisfy that hunger. One thing that teaches you whether you're spiritually alive is whether you have any spiritual hunger. And if you have no hunger for the things of God, how do you know that you're alive? The desire to have our physical appetite satisfied should only cause us to think and say, what about my spiritual appetite? What's that like? Because if I have no appetite, I might be dead. I might be in a coma spiritually. They're the things that God wants us to have. God's continually telling us. You know, when you go to the hospital and they, and they measure you to see whether you're actually working all right or not, one of those things is whether you actually have an appetite. If you've got no appetite, something wrong. And God's telling us, measure yourself. Do you have the appetite? Do you have an appetite today for righteousness, for justice, for love, for mercy, for truth, grace, forgiveness, purity, holiness? Do you have an appetite for those things, for faith? These things belong to God. And only he can provide those things. The world can't provide these things. They can't, the world cannot provide you with holiness and faith and truth. It can't provide you with those things. He is the source of all those things. And Jesus is the only one who can give you those things. He is the only one who can satisfy those things. These are the desires that are planted in a person's heart when they are born again. They are born with these desires. Just as a baby cries because it, it wants milk to drink. 
If you're born again, you'll begin to desire the things of God. You'll begin to desire his word, the truth, holiness, love, grace, mercy, forgiveness. And only he can actually give you those things. If you have none of those desires today, you should not have much assurance about your position before God. Because it may be actually telling you that you're dead spiritually. So what Jesus tells us in John chapter 6, verse 35, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. You want truth? He is the truth. You want life? He is the life. You want righteousness? He is the source of all righteousness because we can't gain our own. He gives it to us liberally. You want love? Is there any greater example of love than him? In fact, he is love. You want peace? He's the prince of it. In the light of all these thoughts, with the Jews living in booths for a whole week, Jesus stands up on the great day of the feast and says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus was clearly telling everyone that he is the source of life. You want to live? Come to him. And as they looked a little bit beyond the end of their own nose, that there's life to be found. And that life is found in him. And that he can not only provide our physical needs, but he will provide our spiritual needs as well. And what it does, it reminds us that we are on a pilgrimage ourselves. The Jews wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. The Bible says that we are not, this is not our home anymore. So in essence, we're the same. We're pilgrims. We don't belong to this world and we don't, we don't, it's not part of us anymore. We can't plant our roots deep in here because we have another home that is being prepared for us. Remember I said to you, Jesus says, I, I go to prepare a place for you. This is not our home. So when you're living in a place that's not your home, you're backpacking. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 speaks about the great men of faith in the Old Testament. And it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Are you a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth? Yes. Sure. I want to finish with an illustration for you and we'll close. Imagine for a moment that you have a wealthy uncle. Okay? You have a wealthy uncle, and he decides to build a beautiful home for you. And he graciously comes to you and says, you know, I built this home. I didn't build it for myself. Actually, I want, to, I want you to live in it for free. And he says, you can, you can live in the house. You won't have to pay rent. I'll take care of everything. I'll pay the water. I'll pay the rates. I'll do everything like that. But I do want you to follow some rules where you're in the house. I want you to just take care of it. I just want you to make sure that, that you keep it tidy. Make sure you lock the doors when you go out. I don't want it uh, ransacked. 
and just try not to damage things by being reckless. Now, who thinks it's a good deal? Is that a good deal? I think it's a very good deal. So you accept the offer and you begin to live in the house and the house is a beautiful home. And you can't get over the fact that he's giving this wonderful home and it's got beautiful bathrooms and lounge rooms and dining rooms and all the appliances are in there. You had nothing to pay and you still got nothing to pay. You're just enjoying this home. But you think to yourself, there's a big home over here. You know, I might invite some of my friends along to come and live with me. So you invite a few of your friends along and um, the friends don't quite respect the owner of the house. They don't know him like you do. Airbnb. Yeah, Airbnb. So then what, they, what you've done is you've included these people along, and they're your friends. You, know, you, want, you want them to benefit as well. You can't, you, there's too much for you to enjoy here. You might as well share it with someone else. So you invite your friends along, and then after a little while, they, they begin to break some of the rules. They leave without locking doors. They, they begin to break things in the home. They, they leave it a mess. And things start to get worse and worse and worse. And pretty soon you're, you're doing the same as them. So they've convinced you to break the rules. And eventually the house, when you look at it from the outside and in, is a complete debacle. The yard's a mess. The grass is overgrown. Things are broken all throughout the house. And one day the owner decides he hasn't been there for a little while and he... He decides to visit and he looks and he sees the house that he gave you for free and he's paying for ongoing is destroyed. So he pulls you aside and he says, what's going on? What happened? And when you see his face, you feel guilty and you feel sorry when you look at what you've done to the gift that he gave you and you confess so the owner says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to send my son to see if he can come and fix this thing up. So he sends his son, who decides that he'll, he'll take care of that and he'll try and sort everything out. He still wants to be gracious to you, he doesn't want to kick you out. So the owner sends his son to come to the house and provide a solution. So the son comes in the home and begins to speak to nicely to everyone, even though the house that, that he owns and his dad owns is completely destroyed. And he tries to reason with everyone. When you hear him, you become convinced that he's, he's, telling, he's doing right, that you made a mistake, and that we've all made a mistake and we should be looking after the home that's been given to us for free. So he, you accept his solution and he forgives you and says, that's fine. And you say, I'll be willing to live by your rules again. I'll look after the home. I'll, I'll, I'll value it more than I did before. But the others in the house refuse to listen to the son. And eventually they get threatened by him. So what they do is they force him outside and they actually kill him. And they think without an heir... They'll be able to claim the house for themselves. And at the same time, they kick you out of the house as well because you're not, living to, you're not willing to live by their rules. 
So the, the owner of the home comes and sees his, his son and he sees you outside as well. And he says, uh, hold on a while. Come and stay in my caravan. Just leave in there for a while. I'll, I'll, I'll look after you while I take care of what's going on over here. So one day the owner comes with police. He evicts the people in the house. He prosecutes those who have killed his son and destroyed the home. And he knocks the house down and builds a whole new one. He asks you to come back and he says, this is for you. My question to you today is, when God returns, will you be the one who's evicted? If you accepted the son and you've accepted his message, do you realise this home, this home here is not yours anymore? And that we live as pilgrims in a caravan? Because the world can't accept you or me. We no longer belong here. All we're called to do is continually warn the people in the house who have locked themselves in that the owner's coming. And if they don't repent, that they'll be prosecuted. And they'll pay for their crimes. But if you're one of, one of those ones who's acknowledged the owner's wishes, then you are that person living in a caravan, you and I. A caravan is a little bit like a tabernacle in the wilderness. And more than likely you've been rejected by the world because you've chosen to believe in God. You've chosen to believe that God is the owner of this place. He built it. He owns it. And we live in his house. And just like you would respect anyone's home that you walked into, you wouldn't go breaking furniture or doing things that you willingly knew would actually offend them because they were being hospitable to you. This world has basically said, we don't care if there's an owner of a home. We don't believe he even built it. Let me share with you a quote from an influential American economic and social theorist, a writer, a, a public speaker, political advisor named Jeremy Rifkin. Now have a listen to these words from this advisor to the governments in America. Listen carefully to his words. We no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home and therefore obliged to make our behaviour conform with a pre-existing cosmic rule. It is our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We create the world and because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. We no longer have to justify our behaviour, for we are now the architects of the universe. We are responsible for nothing outside of ourselves. So we are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Like that? That's one of the ringleaders in the house. That's one of the intellectuals in our society who has essentially said, I don't care if there's a God. He's not God anymore. 
We're God. We make the rules in this place, even though they had nothing to do with it. And if you sense the foolishness in this thing that, that they create, they believe they create their own reality, it's mind-blowing. This is the mindset of most people in the world today. They are their own gods. They refuse to acknowledge they are living in someone else's home. But there are a few who realise that they are not gods. We aren't gods. We don't create reality. We're feeble. We're weak. And we need the owner of the home to look after us. They've been forgiven, redeemed and reconciled with their creator. We call these people born-again Christians. They may have been rejected by the people still occupying the house. But we know that one day an eviction notice is coming and judgment will come. So we continue to warn the people of this world that that day is soon going to be here. So we know that the world we live in, this state, is only temporary. And even though we may struggle with what we see around us, we may struggle with persecution, we may struggle with the fact that we don't seem to fit in, we understand that it's only temporary. And we also believe that he will continue to supply all of our needs until the day we see him face to face. And we walk into this new home. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 4. I'll close with this verse. For every house is built by some man. But he that built all things is God. And Moses was, very, was faithful in all his house as a servant. For a testimony of those things which was soon spoken after. But Christ as son over his own house. Whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Let your hearts be soft. Answer the call. He may be knocking on your heart day after day after day, but there may come a day when the knocking stops. And it'll be too late. I was asked an interesting question the other night. And the question was simply this. How does a person know they're born again? You know what separates a, a nominal Christian from a, a real Christian? One believes in a system. A system. The other one has faith in a saviour. If you don't know the saviour today... Don't wait another day. Be reconciled to God. God bless you. Thank you.